as a product leadership coach in the conversations that I have with product leads, they often have this kind of, okay, I'm massively busy. What are the things that help me scale my impact? And one thing that we figured out that is a helpful tool to free up some of their calendars time is a vital product community. Because people development is something that is often neglected in product organizations. And that's a reason why I wrote the book, Strong Product People, to help product leads to up their people development game, right? And make that easier for them. But that is still a lot of effort. And some of the people development could happen in a community of practice. And then it's more a peer coaching thing. And then it's learning together and sharing what you learn with others. So that is really a big part how product people could experience mastery. Welcome to Product with Benash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Petra Villa, who is an independent product leadership coach and author of Strong Product People, who's been helping product teams boost their skill sets and product leaders develop their teams and themselves. Alongside her freelance work, Petra co-organizes Product at Heart in Hamburg, Germany. Petra is currently very curious about how companies are starting and maturing their communities of practice, and she's been writing a lot about this lately. Hi, Petra. How are you? Oh, so excited to be here. Hi, Axel. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Before we dive into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What has been your journey so far? Oh, the journey so far, just to make it really brief. So I started off as an software engineer, as so many of us. We didn't start off in product management because it was not yet a thing. And via the project management route, I was diving more into yeah, requirements, engineering, talking to customers and clients. And I really loved that aspect of the job. So I became a product manager at some point in time in various settings from big companies like SAP to smaller startups and scale-ups. Became a product lead at some point in time, was managing director of a translation startup for some time. Yeah, and then it slowly and naturally evolved for me, the role evolved for me being a product coach first. And the last four years, I'd say I'm a product leadership coach, only coaching people that are managing product people, so to say. Yeah, that's what I do these days. Amazing. We touched on this thing called communities of practice. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What do you mean by communities of practice? Yeah, that is a topic. So as a product leadership coach, in the coaching conversations that I have with product leads, they often have this kind of, okay, I'm massively busy. What are the things that help me scale my impact, so to say? And one thing that we figured out that is a helpful tool to free up some of their calendars time is a vital product community. Because people development is something that is often neglected in product organizations. And that's a reason why I wrote the book, Strong Product People, to help product leads to up their people development game, right? And make that easier for them. But that is still a lot of effort. And some of the people development could happen in a community of practice. And then it's more a peer coaching thing. And then it's learning together and sharing what you learn with others. So that is really a big part how product people could experience mastery. I love this Daniel Pink autonomy, mastery, and purpose thing. What every employee is actually, or every human being is thriving for to experience these things throughout their career. And mastery is definitely something that you can feel when you share with your colleagues what you've learned at this conference the other day, or when you're watching a talk together and discuss what that actually would mean for your current product that you're working on or something like that. And you could share best practices because, hey, maybe you fell in love with jobs to be done or opportunity solution trees, and it really works well for your team. And why not sharing it with the colleagues that may have not yet been exposed to these frameworks and models? And that's really what a community of practice could be doing. Plus, 
a lot of onboarding stuff often falls on the product leader's table. And I think that is another thing that a product community of practice could do. So a lot of the onboarding things could be done by peers and colleagues. So that's why I started to look into that topic and got curious about it. And what I learned throughout the research, and I did a lot of research last year as I conducted yeah, 17 interviews with people that are actively running or actively are part of a vital community of product practice. And I conducted a survey where over 100 people replied uh, and asked them several things about the communities of practice they belong to and what works well and what doesn't and what are great rituals and formats and stuff like that. So I did my research, so to say, and I really learned that a few companies are really doing it well and really fostering these communities of practice. And some haven't even thought about running one and that it could be a thing. So I decided that I want to help more product people belong to community of practice because for my career, it really made a difference. And it was such a good thing to belong to a strong community of product practice. Brilliant. Thanks for clarifying that. What does a good community of practice look like? <laughs> Yeah, that is actually when I run community of practice workshops, one of the first questions that we're actually discussing. So how does success look like? And what often comes, I think it's as always in product, it depends and it needs to be something that you adjust to the company situation. But in general, I think self-sustainability is one success criteria of a community of practice. So it should not be the case that the whole community is dependent on one or two people that are constantly running the community and bringing everybody together. And once those folks are out of the picture, nothing actually happens. So if it's a good and vital community of practice, then things are naturally happening. So people just reaching out to their colleagues and say, hey, I'm reading this book. Is anybody else wanted to read it? And should we run our small book club? Or, hey, I'm going to this conference. Should I bring back the learnings? I would love to share that with the rest of the group. Or Maybe they just share worthy reads from all across the web and all these kind of things. So self-sustainable is definitely something that I would consider a success criteria. And then the other things is, okay, is it helpful? Is it a good way to onboard new colleagues? Is it a place where people experience mastery? Is it a place where people actually learn and thrive? And is it a place where everybody has a say to some extent? So even if the junior product manager is attending a conference dish, still could bring back learnings, right? So yeah, are the different voices heard in a community? So these are some things that I would mention when it comes to successful community work. I think in the education or ed tech world, they call this social learning when it's like inside a company, how different people do like share what they've learned. How have you seen people actually structure this like on a very like concrete and actionable level? You mentioned earlier, for example, a team might have had some success or not with a particular methodology, and then they share that with another team. What does that actually look like when it's done well? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there's some ingredients that a community of practice needs to thrive. And that's, first of all, the personal connections. If people like to spend time together and hang out together and share what they learned, and there is a certain level of psychological safety because otherwise people don't share. So that's the, the bare mi minimum for starting a community of practice is that people feel safe when sharing what they learn. Because social learning only works if we not only share the good things and the best practices, but maybe even our struggles and fuck-ups and all these kind of things. So that's the, yeah, the pure minimum that you have to have before you actually start community of practice work. So that's definitely something that you want to create first. Yeah, and then it's really the personal connections, as I was already saying. And then it really depends on what the people like to do because product people are busy. All of us are super busy. And sometimes the more successful things are the ones that are really low-key. So maybe it's just a Slack channel where people share asynchronously some great reads or these kind of things. Maybe it's book clubs where only a few people are joining. Some companies do funny quizzes. Maybe there's even team events happening for the community of practice. Definitely the company needs to, and that's where I see product communities thrive, if the company has a stance on, we think personal development is important. We want our people to learn and to develop, and therefore we're willing to invest in that. And they could be, I'm not talking about massive budgets, but they could be encouraging them to read books, for example, in the working hours, 
it's often that the people never asked their direct managers, hey, is it okay if I do learning in the working hours? And it's maybe a masterclass here and there, or it's reading a book or a blog post or watching a talk with colleagues. And if all of that has to happen in their free time, that is, I think, a big ask. Maybe some of that can happen in their free time, but companies should encourage people to even learn in their working hours. So that is definitely something time. Social connections is something. Psychological safety is important. And then maybe a bit of budget. So a bit of budget in terms of that they allow to buy some books or maybe to attend a conference together and then bring back the learnings and all these kind of things. So that's the things that it usually takes that people are running a vital community. Thank you. One of the things that I can see is that specifically in the current economic context is a lot of companies have seen their learning and development budgets shrink down. Yep. And in fact, if you forget about today's context, my impression of learning and development in general is that in a lot of companies, it is not a top of mind topic. It's not like the number one priority. Yeah. How have you seen, how have you seen people deal with this? Because we're in a, we're in a role, in a job, in a career where learning is absolutely crucial. Sure. You can learn from your manager if you're lucky, but how have you seen people deal with this when they don't have the budget to do that? Yeah, I think you don't need an extensive budget to become a seller product person because all of the thought leaders that we're listening to have published, I guess, most of the material online for free. It's just a bit more work to access these things. So you could read all the Silicon Valley product group blog posts or you could buy the book, but it's all there, right? So it's just a bit more effort to walk through all of that. There are a lot of talks published. So it's not that you need a lot of money. And I think we often tend to forget that learning works by consuming stuff, but it also works by using it, applying it to your daily work, and then inspect and adapt and reflect on what you learned, and then maybe sharing it with others. So that's contributing to your larger product community because contribution that is actually what leads to true mastery. In the moment you're creating a talk on a particular topic or a mini training for your colleagues on how to give feedback or I don't know, whatever, that is the moment when you really yeah, get back in this didactic reflection of, okay, how can I explain what I learned to others? And that helps you to think so much clearer on the things that you do and none of that requires budget, right? Reflecting only requires time. Compiling a talk or a training for your colleagues only requires time. So I think we totally are in a position where we can learn a ton without even spending a dime on a conference or on a training. Saying that as a conference organizer, I still love all of you to come. So it's really cool if you still have some <laughs> training budget left, then come visit us. But I think it's not important to constantly be in training mode and in taking new things in mode. Definitely you want to keep an eye out for things that might be new and helpful in your context, but you don't have to really use all the tools and framework out there. You don't have to try all of them. You don't have to know all of them to do your job well as a product person. So I have plenty of clients that said, no, we ditched this idea of we reading a book a week and we read a book a year. And then we really try to use the methodologies described in there. And we really think about, okay, does that does, is that helpful for us in our current context? Where do we need to adapt, make it ours, so to say? And then maybe the next year we focus on another topic and a bit more learning on something else. Uh, yeah, but I think don't let yourself be discouraged by smaller training budget. There's still a lot that you could do, especially when you pair with your peers and colleagues. One of the things you mentioned earlier resonates a lot with me. You talked about psychological safety, which I think is still a term a lot of people in companies don't understand. It's not like common in the language. And I'd be interesting to get your perspective on how you've seen strong product people, amazing leaders create an environment where people can actually experience psychological safety. What does that look like? 
that is a highly individual conversation to have with every leader that I'm working with because it's so dependent on personal leadership style and preferences. And it is rarely the case that product leads these days have never heard of that term or are unaware of the fact that a diverse working environment is vital for a company's success. So that is a given, I'd say, at least amongst product leads, at least amongst those ones that I meet. And then it is more like, okay, how do you think this could look like in your leadership position and in your leadership role? And then sometimes it's more shielding the product organization from the rest of the corporate world where that topics are not yet a thing. And sometimes if you're working in a small startup that has just been funded, then it's usually way easier to create psychological safety. For me, one important thing really is that everybody has equal airtime in some extent and do leaders care about how can we make sure that even the most introvert person on the team gets heard and gets the time to think things through and to share stuff with their colleagues so that for example is one thing that you could easily sense that if you observe a product organization or teams and how they interact and then airtime and is everybody is having some airtime in meetings and have do they have mechanics to make sure everybody feels safe while speaking and thinking out loud is an important thing to me, for example, and something that I talk about a lot with product leads. So how can they create an environment where people feel safe? And then feeling safe in sharing issues or saying things like, I don't know, that's something we need to learn. Is that something that people could do? Or is it still an environment where everybody has to have all the answers all the time, especially product people? That is another thing. It's truly a task to reflect on your personal leadership style and it's truly a task to reflect on, okay, how much psychological safety you can create and you want to create and you need to create in your current environment. So that's, there's no one size fits all for that. But if people feel safe to share their struggles and to share, neg and share negative things, same airtime, really working together in problem solving mode is another thing. And then it definitely has something to do with the diversity of the teams as well. Because if times are really tough and the thing that you want to create is rather clear, so it's, it's startups, for example, it's rather easy to create alignment there. And if your target group for your product is super heterogen as well, then maybe your team can be as well. But if you want to innovate on behalf of the user and you want to cater a market that is bigger and the world, then you definitely want to make sure that your team is reflecting that diversity-wise. And diversity creates friction, right? Because then we have cultural differences and all these kind of things. And then there's more leadership work to create this environment of psychological safety. And then it's definitely, so then leaders definitely need to wrap their heads around books like the culture map and the culture code and all these kind of things to understand the implications of diversity in their leadership. You, we talked a little bit about your coaching of great product people and what is involved there. One of the questions I had was really, when you talk about psychological safety, for example, one thing that comes to mind is whether these leaders, the people that are setting these examples and, and have the mandates to change the organization, whether they are showing the right behaviors. One of the things that yeah. I have in mind is, vulnerability, right? Mm. What are some of the examples you might have of people showing vulnerability? Well, the reason why I'm specifically asking this question is I had this conversation yesterday with someone we both know, Leah Tharin, and she was telling me about how in her career for a long time, she would just grow and where all of us in product, we're chasing something. Sometimes it's status, sometimes it's titles, compensation, whatever. And the more we rise, the more we believe we cannot be wrong. <laughs> we are not allowed to not know things and a bunch of behaviors like this. How have you seen strong leaders actually adopt a different position to show some vulnerability and create this psychological safety in their teams? Yeah. First of all, I'm not sure. So I think it, that, again, it's really based on your personal upbringing and preferences if you struggle with saying, I don't know, or showing this vulnerability. Because 
I have coached plenty of product leads that had basically even from their really upbringing from their parents and all these kind of things. So they had parents that were not having this impression of I know it all. So parents that were curious and help the kids to explore the world and find the answers themselves. So it could be even something that is coming all the way from your childhood if you feel yeah, at ease with showing some vulnerability or if it's just like hard for you because of your parents have always had this kind of I know the answers. That's where we're going. Just follow. So if that is your upbringing, then you maybe struggle a bit more in situations like that. So for some product leads, it's really natural. They don't struggle at all. They have this natural tendency to be vulnerable and to share their struggles with, with the people they're working with. And for others, it's harder. And that, as said, it can depend on your upbringing, but it can depend on the companies you have to work in so far. And the more competitive these environments have been, the less the, you have built this muscle of saying, I don't know, that's something we need to figure out. And it's definitely a generation thing as well. And it is definitely to some extent a gender thing as well. It's easier, usually easier for women, slightly easier than it is for men. It is easier for younger people in general, generalization here, but that's at least what I see from my coachings. Yeah. And it really starts with simple things like you, you, sometimes you don't have the answer. Sometimes you nearly, really need to invite your whole product team and help you create a new product strategy because you're lost in economic situations right now. And we all have been focused on growth the last, I don't know, 20 years. And now finally it's, profitability maybe that everybody's focusing on and maybe you haven't ever thought about how to make this whole thing profitable right now really quickly and so you need to invite the rest of your team on that journey to now come up with a new product strategy pretty quickly I think that's the things that it could be so in inviting others to solve a hard problem is definitely something sharing your struggles where necessary but I think things that I would avoid is really looking for things where you could be vulnerable just artificially to make everybody around you feel safe. That's not, people can sense that. If there is a chance to be vulnerable and share your struggles and all these kind of things, then do. But I think it's just, you don't have to look out for these things. Yeah, in particular. Yeah. Thank you. One of the threads, common threads running through a lot of what we've already talked about is this thing that I call collective intelligence, right? So you talk about communities of practice and how yeah. people can learn together. You talk about just now how there are situations where you want to get more people involved to help you solve the problem if you're the product leader. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear about what are some of the key topics, let's say the top three things people, when they reach out to you, ask about in terms of challenges, right? I know you've coached hundreds of people over the past few years. What are some of the key things that they're struggling with and how do you help? Providing directional clarity is always something product leaders are concerned about. So how can they provide this directional clarity? And for some, this is coming up with a product strategy. For some, this is more of a process thing. So how could I help my teams to come up with product strategies and how could I help them create roadmaps that are helpful and not limiting in some way? But it's always about this, okay, how can we get the team aligned and that the team knows where we're headed and why we're headed there? So that's definitely an evergreen. And the other thing is it's always... A lot around shared goals and good KPIs and how to measure success in meaningful ways. For the drill, that's all these conversations about outcomes over outputs. And that is definitely something that comes up in most of the coaching sessions, I'd say. Yeah. And from there, it really depends on where the company currently stands. Some of the clients I work with are in big, massive transformations. I have companies, for example, container shipping company. So definitely earlier in the digital transformation journey, definitely other questions, a lot of leadership questions as well. So how does leadership work in a world where we no longer have this pyramid, this hierarchy of things where we tell people what to do, 
So that's just of installing a new operating system when it comes to leadership, right? So that's something. And then for the leaders that are earlier on in their career, it's a lot of the, I hate the term, but the soft skills stuff, which is communication and giving feedback and having the time to think things through. Yeah. So these are some of the evergreens, I'd say. I love that you talked about soft skills. I don't call them that either. I think. What's, the, I, what's I, a I better like term, the, Axel? What's the better term? I use, I use craft skills and human skills. So craft skills for hard skills and human skills for soft skills. Yeah, maybe because I'm stealing the problem, that. The problem with soft and hard is like you're comparing and you're saying one is better than the other, basically. Yeah, right? exactly. And that's, an, that's another great way. That's not a great way to look yeah. at it. But if we look closer at human skills, my point of view is in most cases, the dimension that makes the most difference, sometimes 10x between, I would say, average product leaders and outstanding product leaders is actually on the human skill side of things. I don't know what you think about this, but what are some of the core traits you're seeing or behaviors you're seeing product leaders having to develop as they move from an IC role to their first manager role? That transition in product is considered to be one of the hardest transitions <laughs> yeah. in, in tech jobs in general. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. First of all, maybe briefly why the transition is so hard. And I'm borrowing this from Josh Redfern. He uses this metaphor of the shipyard. And I think it's really beautiful because you, as a product person, I see level, you're working on building the ship. But in a leadership role, you're working on improving the shipyard. So all the things around it and creating this environment where others then can work on these ships and boats and whatever you actually built, right? And you have to work on the shipyard. And that's why the transition is hard because you really, the job really changes. And it's not only the process side of it, there comes the people side with it. Usually you have direct reports for the first time. And you have to work with them and grow the ones that you have and maybe hire some people. So hiring is a big topic, the onboarding stuff, all of that. Plus, in most of the companies, product leadership, and that hopefully is the case, still owns parts of the product strategy. So even in companies where you have empowered product teams that own their product strategy themselves, there is a certain level of portfolio strategy necessary or company-wide product strategy, or you have to think about product principles that span across the teams and across the various products. So that are usually the things that you need to take care about. It's the people, it's the process, it's the product. And before that, yeah, you had a bit of leadership responsibility to some extent towards your team, but let's face it, not really. You have cared a lot about the details and been down with your team, hopefully to the line of code to some extent. And it's so many detailed work. And now you're zooming up on higher altitudes and have to look a bit broader and, the, and further in the future. That's another thing that you have to do, right? So that's why the role is hard. And the actual question was, what are the human skills that I think would be important. Yeah. And a lot of that you can do before you actually make the switch and that makes the switch way easier. And I would, the first thing that I think is, in, and maybe it's not in a prioritized order, but the first thing that comes to mind now is giving feedback and not only task-related feedback, uh, but also behavior-related feedback. Because task-related feedback is yeah, telling your colleague how this meeting went and that you really liked how they prepared the meeting and you, that you loved the agenda or what you didn't like about the agenda and what you think could be improved next. And most of the people that I have been working with, we are used to working in agile environments. We are used to retros. We are used to giving task-related feedback. So that's usually not something people struggle with, <clears throat> but behavior-related feedback and that often is tied to the performance of somebody or how they behave in certain situations. That is way harder to give, but it is something that you have to learn when you're in a leadership role. Because, yeah, people will come to your desk, complain about the colleague, and then you have to think about, okay, what could I do about it? And how do I lead in this situation? And maybe it is sending the person back off and say, but have you told this person? 
And then they're like, yeah, no, because I can't. Or how should I actually tell them that this behavior is weird? And then you have to coach them and help them to prepare for the peer feedback session they are facing. Or in some, hopefully not too many situations, you have to give this behavioral feedback yourself because you are observing stuff that you think is a career stall, for example, for the person you're working with. So definitely being able to give feedback in a good way with positive intent so that it lands well and that people are hearing it. It's not that people have to take your feedback. That's not what you need to try. It's more everybody like this metaphor of it's a present. You just hand it to them and then they grown up, they decide then if they want to act on it or not. But giving good feedback, I think, is one thing that is important. And the other thing is, yeah, you need to find a way to create clarity of thought for yourself. And for some people, that's writing a lot. For some people, it's creating tons of PowerPoint slides to clear up their thinking. For others, is storytelling and creating narratives of what do we want to achieve, a bit of a product strategy narrative, for example. But the question is, how do you create this directional clarity? How can you find the time to actually think through as a leader? So how is your calendar management working that you have time for uninterrupted thinking. And that is, I'd say, another key ingredient for becoming a leader and something you need to practice to become a successful one. I'm happy you mentioned feedback because this topic for a lot of people is like a minefield, right? <laughs> a lot yeah. of people have had very poor experiences. I'm a big fan of nonviolent communication. Me too. Um, I did a I've done a, a lot of training around the topic. We did the first two modules with the rest of the company, really enjoyed it. And it has transformed a lot of how we interact with each other, which was like yeah. really crazy. And our coach, so talking about Marshall Rosenberg's, yes. like the father of nonviolent communication, talks to us about how feedback is like one of the most difficult arts that you have to master in your whole life and explains how even when like 50 years of experience, it's still not easy. No. You've shared some advice here, but what has been your experience of giving feedback, especially in the coaching environment, right? Where this, a lot of what the work you're doing is actually guiding people and providing them with feedback. That, how has that been? I think that's an unfair comparison to some extent because as a coach, that's what people expect from you. So that's why it's way easier to give feedback. And as you're an external voice or person coming with a different perspective, it is way easier to provide helpful feedback to some extent. And they take it less personal because my feedback is never tied to their compensation. And that is what makes feedback hard if you really are the line manager of somebody. Because then you're the one having a say in the promotion and in, re in rewarding situations and in the next pay raise and all these kind of things. So that's why giving feedback for me is way easier than for any product lead that I'm coaching. So they have skin in the game. I don't. Maybe they're not booking me again, but okay, so be it. So yeah, so I think it's way harder to do it as a product lead. And what usually helps people is learning a bit more about the culture of giving feedback. And you, for example, were mentioning nonviolent communication, which definitely is something people should yeah, learn something about, even if it's just like getting the basic ideas of nonviolent communication. Then what I think they need is a super small feedback structure that helps them to come up with feedback quickly and on the spot and in a timely manner. For me, for example, I always use the situation behavior impact. I think that I know that I can use that in situ. I think about, okay, what is the current situation? What is the behavior that the person is showing? And what do I think is the impact of that behavior? And it helps me to make it less personal and make it come across more reflected. So things like that is something that people, I think, need. And then read a bit about the culture of giving feedback. So... Radical Candor is a book that really helps a lot of people. The Cultural Differences, it's definitely a very American book. And in Europe, you might do, might want to do, give feedback less direct at some, yeah, in some situations. But still, it's a great book to start with. And I really love what Julie Tsu wrote in her book about feedback. And the book is called Making of a Manager. So yeah, just 
expose yourself to various ways of giving feedback, then find your personal way that works for you. For me, it's a lot of preparation that I need to do before I actually go into situation when I can give feedback, especially if it's personal behavioral feedback. For others, they're better if they do it on the spot. So as always, their personal preferences. So yeah, it's a bit of work to put in there. And it, I really love, by the way, Axel, you said that the whole team and company was undergoing some of that training. And that is something that I would recommend as well, right? So every team member should have a basic level of how to give feedback training at some point in their career. It's interesting because the way this happened is this was back when the work we were doing was mostly consulting gigs. And we went to work in this company. It's like a travel marketplace. And this was just after COVID. So this company had suffered quite a lot from COVID. And you really have to picture this. There's three of us and we're going in this company and we go in their offices in Paris and we walk in and we can already see Avengers there is style. something there's just something different about this company just walking through the door, right? Like we've not even interacted with anyone yet. And then we start meeting people, big smiles. Everybody's like welcoming us, come on. And then we do the first workshop and this crazy thing happens, which is like very rare, right? The CTO of this company is, I've got no clue how to do this. And he's saying this in front of a huge group of product managers, analysts, designers. And we were all like, wow, what like, what is happening here? And we, at lunch, we were all saying, what a great culture. And at some point it just stuck with me. And I went and spoke to the head of product and I said, can you tell me what's going on here? It looks like there's something special about this place. And she told me as part of the onboarding experience, every employee that joins the company goes through the full range of nonviolent communication okay. training. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And the company in just like making a very conscious decision of saying, we're going to make, we're going to build an amazing company culture. And the way we do this is by investing in the culture itself. Love it. And the way we do this is by training everybody yeah. on NC NVC. And I'm like, wow. And this is when the curiosity started. And I thought I should, we should try this. And yeah. we have, and it's been transformational. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so with a lot of agile teams back in the days when I still was working with the teams doing discovery coaching, it often just helped them to learn about the situation behavior impact thing, or for example. So just a framework that helps everybody to think about giving feedback in a more structured way and shining the light on that this is an important skill to have. Already that has a big impact. So even if your company cannot afford something like the full range nonviolent communication training, mentioning that it's important, that it's an important skill to have, that it's important muscle to build. I think that is changing the dynamics already as well. We also hear a lot of talking about this word that is thrown around so much, which is culture. Like people talk about culture. There's a, there's a lot in this word itself, right? There's communication. We talked about feedback interactions between people, how people are rewarded, what kind of behaviors yes. are rewarded and things like that. The so, rituals. Yeah, exactly. So I'm interested to hear a little bit from your perspective, coaching so many people and seeing so many different cultures in the companies you're intervening. What are the key tenets of a strong product culture? What does that look like? Yeah, that really depends on the definition of what makes a successful company, right? I saw this LinkedIn post the other day about all these companies that constantly hear that they have to work agile and lean and product-centric and product-led and all these kind of things, and otherwise they won't be successful. But that so many companies have been successful without all of these for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's true to some extent, but I think it's more likely for you to be eaten up by competition. If you're not able to move quickly and are a resilient company, and it's again, still, even if it doesn't feel like that right now, there's still this war for talent to some extent. So the good people still have, even in this economic downturn, they pick what companies that they actually want to work with, right? But economic success does not always immediately equal with a great culture, so to say. 
So I saw clients that I then didn't took that were massively successful economically, but the culture was so way off that I couldn't help them right now, maybe in a few years or something like that. Yeah, but what makes a great company culture? So to me, it that values in terms of what are the core beliefs that we are still holding up to and clinging to when times get really rough and when, for example, economically it doesn't look so good. So are we then sacrificing some of our core beliefs or are they still our core beliefs by then? So that is, for example, one conversation that I love to have with product leads or leadership team or executive teams when they say, yeah, we have these values here. You can see them plastered all over the office. And often when you have this conversation, okay, but would you still follow that value even when shit hits the fan and things are not going well, then it's often, yeah, maybe then we, so that's not real values to some extent. So it's like stress, stress, yeah, the stress. I think you need a post more than stress test for your values <laughs> as well. So that is definitely one thing. And then, yeah, another thing is it really, is it the curiosity and the learning together and sharing? Is that something that actually is baked into the DNA of the company that it's fine to say, I don't know, but let's figure it out. And is in actually great company, great product companies, that's the default. So the default is always, that's an hypothesis. We don't know. Let's go figure it out. And they have this reflex for experimentation as well. So that's another thing that I would say a lot of strong product organization have. That's this, we don't know. It's really risky to do it without further information and research. So let's do a bit of research. Yeah. And then another thing culture-wise, product culture-wise is this, do they want to make as an impact? So are we always trying to not just do stuff, but stuff that actually makes a difference for the user's life as well as for the company's yeah, economic uptake, so to say? Plus for the people that are working for the company, that is another thing because it's, it's a company sometimes for guest company as organizations, they're not human beings, but as organizations, they too often forget that they cater not only for the shareholders, but for the people that they employ as well. So that's another cultural thing. Do they care about the people that are working within the organization and that are driving the success? And I know all of us have to make some money for some shareholders somewhere. That's just the system that we live in, but still the people that are working for the company and for the company's success in great product cultures, they're always in a part of the picture as well. We're coming up to my favorite segment of the show, okay. which is called the treasure chest. In this, I've got to ask you a bunch of questions around some of the stuff you've found to be very useful for you as mm -hmm. you journey through product management. What would you say are some of the most helpful resources mm -hmm. you've used to be impactful as a product person? Could be anything. Could be attending a course, reading a book. Ah, okay. So I thought you're giving me topics, and then I give examples for the topics. But in general, it could be it could be anything. Yeah, it could be anything. But from a resource point of view, right? It's something. Mm -hmm. This is something people can go and buy or go and get. Or yeah. So first of all, and that's maybe not something that they can go and get and go and buy, but find a few like-minded people that you're learning from and learning with. Because that really changes so many things for your product career because you're making these connections. The connections are yours to keep throughout your career. And there are a lot of product communities out there. And you could use one of these that is across company and then you could definitely join the one that is inside of your company. But I would recommend to go find a community that works for you. And there very so there's Lenny's community or Mind the Product out there. Some of the big software companies are running their own communities of practice. Teresa has their continuous product discovery community. So these are definitely communities you could join. And if you're active there, then I think that is beneficial for you as well. So that's maybe my number one recommendation. Yeah. And then book-wise, I think I already mentioned some of the book and there are a lot of product book recommendations out there. So maybe not adding to that. It's more on the human skills side where I think, so I really like this book, Time to Think which is about how you create time to think and how you foster an environment where people are able to think things through. And it has really love, lovely examples from how doctors use that to be the better healthcare practitioner or how they used it in schools to help students find their voice and think through in 
have more clarity for themselves and for their life and take ownership of their lives as well. So that's, for example, an interesting book that I like to recommend a lot. Yeah. What are other books? I already mentioned a few, right? So Julie Zhu's Making of a Manager, definitely yeah. a great book to read. If you want to become a manager, a line manager at mm -hmm. some point in time, and even if you already are one, I think it's still a nice reframing. Yeah. These kind of books. I'll share these in the show notes. Thanks for sharing. My next question is, what would you say have been some of the key accelerators in your career? So typically these could be meeting someone, could be a mentor, could be a coach that you've came across at some point. Various things. I was super lucky that most of my line managers always were really good in the people development part and the giving feedback part really from early, early on in my career. It would take too long to name them all, but that actually was super helpful. Then product coaching early on definitely made a difference in my career. So that is something that helped me a lot and was really like a booster. Yeah. And what, yeah. And then when I was back in the IC level product management role, we had a super lively community of practice going on back at the time, back at my time at Zing. And we were basically always in sharing and caring for each other mode and learning together. And that exposed me to a lot of different ideas and different ways to do product. And I could observe my colleagues totally using different tools and ways of managing stuff, but they still were successful with the teams. And that helped me to understand like, okay, there is no single way of doing product management. It's you need to find your style and so it could be successful. And that definitely helped me. This realization helped me throughout the career as well. Yeah. Lovely. Third question, what advice would you give your early career self? So think about Petra from early career, just starting in product and in tech. What would you tell her? Yeah, definitely some tips on, I don't know, salary negotiation, things that usually are just harder for women to do for several reasons. We're saying sorry way too often and excuse me and all these kind of things, stepping up when I think I have a say and can add something to the conversation. So that's definitely something that I would advise myself to do. And then things that just proven to be accidentally a good decision is join companies with different backgrounds and different sizes. So SAP being the corporate massive dinosaur-like company and then smaller startups and scale-ups, all of that helped me to learn the things necessary to do the job well in the end. So a bit of a diversity in the roles that I picked which was accidentally and not deliberate, but in the end, it turned out to be a good decision. So I would do that again. Lovely. My last question, and then I want us to talk a little bit about Product at Heart, the conference. Bear with me. Imagine you're stranded on a deserted island, right? Yeah. And you can have the following things. One, you can take a book. Which book would you take? And two, you can have an endless supply of one specific dish for all meals going forward, what would that dish be? Okay, so the book would definitely be something from Derek Sivers, maybe How to Live. That's one that I could read over and over again. And the dish would maybe be Patai or something like that. I think that would be my pick. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much, Petra. It was amazing yeah, learning thank from you. you today. Before we wrap up, before I let you go, why don't you tell us a little bit about Product at Heart? I've been hearing a lot <laughs> about this. All my friends in the German product community are raving about this already. I've been invited by different people to come. Sadly, I won't be able to join, but please tell us about Product at Heart. Yeah, Product at Heart is a conference, as we call it, for curious product people. So it's definitely for the practitioner that are doing product management for quite some time. So we cover the stuff that people that are a bit longer in the job are really interested in and about, I'd say. It's a three-day thing where we run a leadership event for only 60 product lead because we want them to mingle and to have really lively conversation because product leadership often is a lonely job, let's face it. So we're doing that and Teresa Torres is coming over for that one and Sam McAfee is coming over. Sean Russell and Amelia Lindstrom are doing a session on how to create this time to think environment. So that's pretty interesting and I'm thrilled that is happening. Then we have two workshops going on Thursday. One is Jeff Gotthalf is teaching OKRs and Tim Herbig does something on product discovery. 
And Friday is the big conference day where we have a lot of speakers around John Cutler's coming, Jeff, Jeff Gotthoff, Teresa Torres is coming. So a lot of people, dual track sessions on, yeah, providing this directional clarity, for example, but things like product operations. So as a product leadership coach in the coaching conversations that I have with product leads, they often have this kind of, okay, I'm massively busy. What are the things that help me scale my impact, so to say? And one thing that we figured out that is a helpful tool to free up some of their calendars time is a vital product community. Because people development is something that is often neglected in product organizations. And that's a reason why I wrote the book, Strong Product People, to help product leads to up their people development game, right? And make that easier for them. But that is still a lot of effort. And some of the people development could happen in a community of practice. And then it's more a peer coaching thing. And then it's learning together and sharing what you learn with others. So that is really a big part how product people could experience mastery as well. So there's a lot of still uncertainty going on around that term and that topic. So that's something where we hope to get a bit more clarity on with three talks, for example, on that topic. So yeah, a full day packed with a lot of talks and hopefully meeting a lot of like-minded people. So it should be 650 attendees if everybody buying the tickets that we have put online. So a lot of new product friends to find, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Tell us when it's happening and where it's happening. Yeah, the, con the actual conference is happening 13th of June and it's in Hamburg in a nice contemporary uh, dance arts venue. So it's actually theater and it's a bit like a festival vibe because of the setting there is just like in a festival manner, I'd say. But yeah. End of June. Lovely. Brilliant. So yeah, there you go. You've got your rendezvous for end yes, of June. Please. Thank you so much. If you're hearing this, it was a you've listened to this episode really all the it. way. Yeah. And for <laughs> that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.